Hey, just a quick thing before we get to the show. I have some amazing news, which is that we are doing another live show. It's coming up, and it's happening on February 8th in Columbus, Ohio. And I'll be talking with Jenny Britton Bauer, the founder of Jenny's Splendid Ice Creams. It's supported by American Express Open, and tickets will go on sale in just a few days. You can get them at nprpresents.org. And because we're gearing up for that, we're going to reach into the archives today to play one of our very favorite episodes for you. I know I say that every time, but really, this one is incredible. It's a story of how Kate Spade turned her name into one of the most popular handbags in the world. Enjoy. We were still not making any money. Nobody was making a salary. We were, Andy was funding everything. I just remember thinking, I think we need to shut it down. I said, it's... We had run through our 401k money and, you know, all of our savings at that point. We still weren't seeing, you know, a progression that was going to pay us a salary in the next year, in the near future. So we thought, all right, we had a good run at it. We think we've had it. From NPR, it's How I Built This, a show about innovators, entrepreneurs, idealists, and the stories behind the movements they built. I'm Guy Raz, and on today's show, how a Midwestern kid named Kate Brosnahan took a roll of burlap, sewed it into handbags, and launched an iconic brand called Kate Spade. The person behind the brand you know as Kate Spade grew up as Kate Brosnahan in Kansas City, Missouri. And she always loved fashion, but she never planned to work in fashion. In fact, she wanted to be a journalist. So in the early 1980s, she went off to study journalism at Arizona State University. And that was where Kate met her future husband, Andy Spade. We worked together at a clothing store, and I was on the women's side He was on the men's side, and one day his car broke down, (laughs) and he asked me for a ride home. And we really started off as really great friends. And the car continued to break down, so I I think it (laughs) nurtured our relationship along. (laughs) And the rest of the story, well, 30-plus years later, they're still together. Anyway, Kate graduated from college first. Andy was a few credits short. So she decided to backpack around Europe by herself traveled around and came back to New York and went to a temp agency because I desperately needed some some money. <laughs> why, why did you why did you want to move to New York? Well, it was kind of I really was expecting to go back to Arizona to be with Andy, but that's where my ticket. It started and ended in New York. And I didn't have the money to get back, so I needed a job in order to do that. So I started at a temp place, and I was typing, and they said, "Um, I don't think this is going to work out. And then she called the next day and said, can you get ready right now? Condé Nast called, and they have a job in the fashion department. So uh, they ended up hiring me. They didn't want to because I couldn't type. And my boss said, listen, she's great, and I don't need her to type a lot because we were doing fashion shoots and styling, so... Um, it wasn't as you know. Yeah, what was you? What were you? What were you doing at, at Condé Nast? Well, I started as an assistant, so I was um, tying, you know, models' shoes on a photo shoot because they couldn't bend over in their clothes. That or getting hairstylists, Snickers. I'm telling you, whatever. I ironed and carried bags, and it was a lot of work. <laughs> I'll say that. 
And, and meantime, Andy, you were you were back in Tempe at Arizona State University. I was back in Tempe. I was struggling with a few required courses. I, I think I had more credits than necessary, but there were a few that I couldn't get through. But I did start an advertising agency my senior year in college. And so I, I started trading ads for bartering food. And so I'd, I'd go to a restaurant, for example, and I'd, I'd bring in the ad that they had running in the local paper. And I would show it to them and say, I think I can do better if I come back and show you a, a better version of this. Will you either pay me in food or give me a few hundred dollars? I had like 10 takers. So I ended up with 10 accounts. Um, I mean, things were going well. And, and Kate, were you still planning to head back to Arizona uh, at, at that point? Yes. And I kept saying, oh, I'm coming back. I will only stay here for six months. Well, first of all, it was three months. Then I moved it to six. And then finally I said, I have to be honest. I kind of like my job. I loved it. And I loved the, you know, the fast pace of New York. And suddenly it just, I loved it. When she got her job offer for $14,000 a year, everything changed. <laughs> um, she said, I'm staying. And that's when I said, well, I'm, gonna, I'm moving to New York. And you just figured, I, I, I'll find something there. Yeah, I figured I'd, I'd find something there. I had a little portfolio of advertisements that I'd written and art directed. And so I took that with me to New York in hopes of finding a job. And, and what, did you guys, uh, did you uh, like move in together? We did. Um, I, I forwarded a little bit of money that I had um, to Kate for a security deposit on the cheapest apartment she could find. And I remember arriving and Kate said, call me from a payphone on the corner when you arrive and I'll get out on the fire escape. So I called and I walked to 26 Renwick Street and I looked up and she was out on the fire escape <laughs> and she threw down a sock with a key in it. That is true. <laughs> um, it's easier to throw it down than to walk. And you had like your, your like suitcase with you? I had one warm coat, a suitcase, <laughs> and a portfolio. Wow. And, and did you, Kate, um, I know you went to an all-girls Catholic high school. Yep. Did your parents um, have a problem with you living with Andy? They never really said much, but my mother was not pleased with it. Yeah. She was not pleased with it at all. But, I mean, I just kept saying it was a matter of economics. <laughs> we were just being practical. So, Andy, did you did you actually land a job in, in advertising? I did. I was interviewing in, in a lot of programs like YNR and Ogilvy and May there, but my portfolio didn't reflect the kinds of accounts that they were working on, cars and IBM. But one day I was walking through Grand Central Station and uh, a young man in a suit pulled me over. I was carrying my portfolio and he said, what do you do? And I said, well, I'm looking for a job as a copywriter. And he said, do you have a minute? And I said, sure. He said, I'd love to look at your portfolio. And we stopped in Grand Central Station. He went through my portfolio and he said, I think I might have something for you. I'm a recruiter. Just happened to see me walking wow. through Grand Central is Station. That crazy? That's crazy. I yeah. can't believe this is, this is an honest God true story. And he went through it and he said, Meet me in my office tomorrow, which I did. And he sent me on three or four interviews, um, one of which was, was uh, an agency named Bozell Jacobs Kenyon and Eckhart. And they had an opening for someone to work on the Army National Guard and Merrill Lynch. And he said, I know you haven't had any experience on these these types of businesses, but I like your chutzpah hmm. at the time. I didn't know what chutzpah meant until <laughs> I, I called someone and I said, what does it mean? And they said, oh, it means you have, you know, you took a chance starting your own business. It's a positive. And so I got that job. So, okay. So you guys are in your early 20s. Mm -hmm. You're living the New York life. Kate, you're working at, at Condé Nast. Right, at Mademoiselle Magazine. At Mademoiselle Magazine, which yes. is pretty great, actually. It pretty was great. amazing. I mean, my mom 
framed when they put my name in the masthead. She still has it framed. <laughs> and what were you doing? What were you? What, what did you start to do there? Well, it was first assistant with the senior fashion editor, and then I was promoted to associate editor, and I was in charge of all the accessories. And I did that for a couple of years. Then they promoted me to senior fashion editor. And if there's one thing I did learn was how to be very resourceful. And it came in very handy for when we started our business because, I mean, it was do not come back to me with no. Hmm. I mean, you figure it out. I mean, it would be we have to go on a shoot in two days and we need eight tickets to the Bahamas and figure out how to get us all there. I mean, if we're all on different airplanes, I don't care, but get us there. And I was mm. like, make it happen. <laughs> so I, I guess it was sort of the the, the early 90s, like maybe, maybe 1991 yes. when you decided to leave Mademoiselle magazine. Yes. Um, what was going on? Why did you decide to go? It's funny. You know, Andy and I were talking one night and I just said um, – I was looking ahead and I saw the fashion director as that would be your next jump from being senior fashion editor. And I thought, oh, I don't – I don't really see myself wanting that that job. So Andy and I were out, honestly, at a Mexican restaurant, and he just said, what about handbags? And I said, honey, you just don't start a handbag company. And he said, why not? How hard can it be? <laughs> I thought, okay, really, he regrets those words. Why, why handbags, Andy? Well, well, she was an accessories editor, and she collected you know, handbags for her fashion shoots. That was one of her key responsibilities. So she'd have to get handbags from you know, vintage stores for beach shoots, straw bags. She had a, a personal collection that was amazing, and then she knew every handbag company in the market. And I thought she understood it better than anyone. What's missing in the market? Well, and what, what was missing in the market at the time, Kate? At the time, things were very... Bags were too complicated. And I really loved very simple kind of architectural shapes. And I would wear these very simple shapes, none of which were famous designers. I mean, there were no names. If someone were to say... Whose is that? I'd say, I, I don't know. I bought it at a vintage store or it's a straw bag I got in Mexico. So, And they were all very square and simple. And I thought, gosh, I mean, why can't we find something just clean and simple and modern? So, Okay, so about this time that, that you wanted to quit, you were thinking, like, I'm done with fashion magazines? Yes. And Andy was like, you know bags, you know, like, why don't you try to do this this on your own? Absolutely. He had actually said it before I quit, so I kind of – already had it in the back of my mind. And I remember at the very beginning thinking, why didn't I stay? I could have made an income while I was working on this. And someone said to me, the truth is you would never have done it had you stayed because I wouldn't have been as scrappy or as, I mean, it was kind of, you know, do or die. So I think if I'd still been working, I would have been like uh, a little bit more lackadaisical about it. Whereas when you don't have an income coming in, you are, you're doing whatever you can to make it happen. So how did you even start to to design handbags? I mean, you had no background in design. You didn't Zero. How did you even know what to do and like what and how to sew things and put rivets in and all that stuff? It's funny. I did not know and I did start by buying big sheets of white paper and I would cut out and tape, honestly, the shape that I wanted. And then I'd look at it and I'd make it shorter, smaller, cut it. And I went to a pattern maker that I found in the back of Women's Wear Daily. She advertised that she made patterns. So I contacted her. She worked out of her apartment and she was as patient as could be with me because I didn't know anything. And I remember being really embarrassed about that, that I wasn't, you know, 
a student from Parsons or RISD or FIT that I really didn't know what I was doing. And I honestly started with paper. Then we'd make a sample out of any kind of fabric, muslin. And then um, I kind of got the shape down and I had to find a manufacturer. So I called Women's for Daily. They connected me to a department that they really said we don't do that. But someone in the fashion department said, oh, it's so odd. I know someone. And he had left himself, this production guy, to start his own business. So was this guy that, that you found, was he was he a designer? He wasn't a designer. He was a manufacturer. So he uh, did the production. And so I brought in my samples and he was like, okay, well, I want some money up front. And he really was very nervous that I wasn't going to pay him. And um, But he took our tiny little production, honestly, which would be 10 bags at a time, you know. And how, how long after like you you sort of started to sketch out designs was this was this like a few weeks later or months later what, what did you were you working on this idea for a long time in your apartment yes i mean i'd say at least a year andy yeah at least a year and you were freelancing at night and certain days a week as a stylist mm-hmm. and you know after getting the patterns made the, the next big challenge was finding someone who would sell us fabric and because we didn't have any experience none of the fabric houses would sell us anything other than 100 yards for example right and 100 yards was obviously too much 500 oh, yards yeah. we only needed to make six bags we had six <laughs> shapes so we only needed probably 40 yards 30 yards 20 25 so i called i looked in the yellow pages and i looked up um, burlap and I found a potato sack company that was willing to sell to me. Huh. And they had three different, you know, weights. And I needed the heaviest weight so that it was, you know, substantial enough for a handbag. And that was actually our first collection. Made out of burlap. Made out of burlap. So what did the bags look like? They were sort of, I'm imagining like brown burlap, kind of rectangular little bags? Yes, absolutely. With raffia fringe. And this webbing handle, and I found a webbing company also in the yellow pages. <laughs> All right, so you get this, you get these samples, and then what? You how do you get that? How do you start? What's the first thing you do? You go to these accessory shows, trade shows, trade shows, and you have to get accepted. And we did, and of course, you know you're. You get the worst spot because all the famous people end up in the front. This was in in New York? In New York at Javits Center. This was the first trade show you went to debut the Kate Spade burlap bag. Yes. And we, honest to God, brought in our own tables, our own chairs. We brought in lamps. From our apartment. Our apartment. Books. Actually, our booth turned into our apartment for for the week. Yeah. Were you guys nervous? I mean, Kate, were you like, I don't know, was, were you worried that maybe somebody from Condé Nast would see you and you'd be a little embarrassed or mm-hmm. somebody would sort of call you out and say, what do you do? Or who are you guys? Were you were you yes. freaking out? I was I because the editors come by as well as the buyers hmm. to the trade shows. And I really didn't tell my parents or my family about it or anyone for that matter because I thought if it doesn't work, I will be so embarrassed because everyone kept saying, why would you have quit your job? You had insurance, blah, blah, blah. And, who, you know, who do you think you are? I just knew my family would just, you know, mm-hmm. oh, you got a little hot-headed, big-headed there in New York and think you can start this company. So I kept it on the down low. We atten- intentionally didn't really talk about it yes. much to f- family uh, because I think secretly we both thought it would fail. How did, how did people respond to the bags? It, it, well, 
I remember crying because when I came home, we hadn't even sold enough to cover the cost of the booth. And I started crying, and Andy said, well, who did you get? And I said, well, we got um, Barney's. And he said, okay. And I said, Fred Siegel in Los Angeles. And he was like, right? And then it was, he goes, Katie, <laughs> he said, you've got two of the best stores in America. Why are you crying? I said, I think we should shut it down. I'm very conservative. And I said, I, I have no interest in losing money. I said, and we've, you know, we've already spent $4,000, and that's it for me. I'm not a gambler. So that's where Andy was like, no, keep going. And also I have to give a great deal of credit to the editors. Now, at the time, we weren't selling a lot, but the editors were putting us in the magazines a lot. What was it about your bags that appealed to them or that, that got their attention? I think because they... It wasn't anything anyone was doing. And everyone, there's a fabric show in Paris called Premier Vision that all the designers go to. So sometimes you could end up with the same materials. Hmm. Mine came out of the yellow pages. So <laughs> chances are I wasn't going to run into any people that had the same materials. So we were doing something different, which was really to our advantage. So editors were like, look at these beautiful burlap bags. Well, I don't know if they thought they were beautiful, but I knew they thought they were interesting. Yeah. <laughs> and we did. We got a lot of credits, and that's when my mother first found out. And she was embarrassed, and she called and said, you know, I, how embarrassing that you didn't tell me, and my friend had to tell me. And I said, oh, you know, I don't know. I don't want to make a big deal of this. And, you know, okay, it's one credit. That's not a business, you know. How did you come up? Come, how did you sort of land on the name, Kate Spade? Well, that was Andy, because we were I was not Kate Spade. I was um, Kate Brosnahan, and I kept coming up with these names, and Andy kept saying Kate Spade, because we were 50-50 partners. Hmm. And finally I just said, okay, and everyone said, I love it, Kate Spade, New York. And I remember telling, to your point about my Catholic parents, I told my mom, Honestly, she burst into flames. I mean, she was like, but you're not Kate Spade. And I said, I know, but and she said, oh, now you'll never be Kate Spade. Now you've, you know, you've jinxed it. And <laughs> why would you name it Kate Spade? And I said, well, it's my first name, his last name. And it's like Dolce & Gabbana. And she goes, who the hell's that? <laughs> and I said, never mind. I said, it'll work. <laughs> we hope. In just a minute... Why, after three years of making no money, Kate and Andy almost walked away from their little handbag company. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to How I Built This from NPR. Support for How I Built This comes from 3M. From helping drive vaccine and therapy development with advanced purification technologies to developing an adjuvant that helps boost vaccine effectiveness, the research scientists at 3M are delivering innovative healthcare solutions to help us today and prepare us to better tackle what's next. Learn more at 3M.com slash improving lives. 3M science applied to life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Don Julio Tequila. Don Julio Gonzalez didn't just farm agave. He worshipped them. He harvested each agave individually, plant by plant, only handpicking the agaves at optimum maturity. And his legacy lives on today through his exceptional tequila, Don Julio, a life devoted to tequila making. Please drink responsibly. Don Julio tequila, 40% alcohol by volume, copyright 2021, imported by Diageo Americas, New York, New York. 
It's How I Built This from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. So when Kate and Andy debuted the original Kate Spade bag, they got orders from Barney's and Fred Siegel, and that was a big deal in the world of fashion. But even with those orders, it didn't mean Kate and Andy were suddenly flush with cash or living large in New York. It wasn't even a guarantee that the company was going to be successful. In fact, Andy, he kept his full-time job in advertising. You know, paying the overhead, um, basically the rent and the other expenses, right? Well, Kate freelanced and started the company. And I just thought, well, we're both 29, 30 years old and... You know, it's time to do it. We don't have children. Let's not quit, even if we lose everything. Hmm. You know, Kate can always go back to a fashion job. Um, You know, I can continue to work in advertising. And and you guys were running the company, like, out of your apartment? Well, we had to move to a loft in Tribeca because we were in a small apartment. Then we moved to a loft. We had boxes, honestly, guy, everywhere to the point where our loft bed was up these stairs that we'd crawl up. The entire apartment was just a sea of brown boxes. But that sounds like we were doing very well, but it really was. We were still... You were shipping out things from the apartment? Oh, yes, for at least two and a half years. So Katie would take the train to Brooklyn to the factory, pick up the boxes, take them back on the subway. In trash bags. In trash bags, walk them up a five-floor walk-up, and she was shipping and packing bags and doing everything and taking orders on the fax machine. I remember they'd come through in the middle of the night. We'd hear, right. rawr, 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 rawr. I go, good. We were, we'd get excited. But the orders <laughs> would not be that big because it was hard to, for people at that time to kind of, once they started selling, then you get bigger orders. So it was really very gradual. I mean, it was at least three years before we paid ourselves Maybe 15000 a year. I mean, the four, fourth year, we paid ourselves 15000 And we were still working out of our apartment. Yes. And it was our home office and our shipping warehouse and our home. Did you start to see in the first year or two uh, women walking around New York with Kate Spade bags? I did, um, most of whom were editors uh-huh. <laughs> who were getting them at a very good discount. So, But eventually we started to see it. And I remember thinking when I did, that was a big deal. And, um, you know, I think it took people a while. Even my family, my sister was working at Gucci and actually called me and said, we're all pitching in for mom for Mother's Day <laughs> to get her a Gucci bag. And I thought, what? Are you serious? I remember that. Because they really didn't think um, it would be much. I still should be upset with them about that. Hopefully they're listening. <laughs> so so all the while, you're shipping bags out, you're getting orders in, and you are still designing bags. Yes. So you're working like crazy. We are. And what we ended up doing was we took on two partners – for sweat equity only, it was my friend Elise Ahrens, my best friend since I was 18, and then Pamela Bell, someone that we just met through friends here in New York. So the three of us were in cars going to the factories. I was really doing the design only, but you know, I also was steaming the bags, box, and packing all of it. And how were you guys funding all this? I mean, was it, was it all with your own money? Yeah, I got a job offer to work for Saatchi and Saatchi in L.A., and I, I almost tripled my salary. Mm. And, you know, we were still funding the company ourselves, and we needed money for fabric, and we needed money for the trade shows. And so we both agreed that I would go to L.A. Oh, Andy, you did move to L.A.? Oh, he did. And I thought I could go back and forth, and at the time, Elise and Pamela would hold down the New York part, and I would do 
FedExing all my designs and materials. And I rented a little house that I called the house I never lived in. <laughs> I never bought a piece of furniture. And I just took the money and sent it, you know, put it back into the business. Did you ever hit a point in, in the first few years where you thought this was going to collapse, this was, this was going to fail? Yes, and I remember calling back to Elise and Pamela in New York, and I said, I think we need to shut it down. I said, it's... What, wow, were you guys, like, in debt, or...? It was hard. I mean, it was. we were still not making any money. Nobody was making a salary. We were... Andy was funding everything. And, and at that point, we were all kind of putting money in. Pamela would put in some, Elise, and I just remember thinking, oh, again, it's like, ooh. We had run through our 401k money and, you know, all of our savings at that point. We still weren't seeing you know, a progression that was going to pay us a salary in the next year, in the near future. And we thought, all right, we had a good run at it. And I think we called the, the partners who we brought in as, as equity partners on a handshake without any salary. And we said, we think we've had it because we were exhausted. And they said, well, we just left to start with you. And you know, <laughs> right. we, we, haven't re, we haven't had any returns on yeah. our time we put in. It's a, <laughs> the deal's not, you know, That's not, true. Not, not working. So we felt like uh, you can't just walk out. And I remember we spoke and said, all right, we're going to go back. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you remember what year that was? I'm trying to think. 95, 96, 95 probably. 95, and I did get another job in New York, a great job actually. And so. But still, the company was not making yeah. money. No. Not profitable. No. What was the turning point? What, what happened? I would say the stores really started to buy more. We were in Saks and Neiman's, and when the larger department stores started to buy, it kind of really took off, and we won the CFDA Award, which is the Council of Fashion Designers of America. And there were reporters from around the country, not just New York at the show, that were saying, you know, oh my, who is this? Hmm. And so that really, really helped us a great deal, I have to say. That was the award that, you know, most you know, small American designers didn't win at the time. No. It was usually, you know, Ralph Lauren, Calvin yes. Klein, Donna, Karen, all of those people. And I remember, Kate, when we came back to New York and we were hoping something would happen that either Neiman's or Saks, they were buying for two or three stores, and they said, we're going to buy for all of our stores. Wow. And that was 50 stores or more than 50 right. stores, and that quadrupled our business. But what you have to realize is when that happens, although it's very good, you also have to upfront pay for the production. They don't pay you for 30 to 60 days. So I remember thinking, how are we going to afford this? But we never borrowed a dime, ever. Was there something that you guys did, like a business decision that you you made that that was the key to turning this around? Or was it just more people started to discover it and you just you had just persevered through those rough years and then it finally just kind of on its own, you know, got discovered? That's exactly what happened. I mean, it really was just kind of a little bit of a snowball effect. You know, it just got a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And I think... It, at the point where the larger department stores were picking us up, I think then it, we realized, I think we have a business here. We loved it. We kept getting larger and larger spaces and stores, which is very important. You know, at first you're on a tiny little table, then maybe you get a few bigger space and shelves, and the next thing you know you have store and store, shop and shop is what they call them, where your name is above it, really big. Yeah, how did you feel about that, to, see your, to, to walk into a, a fancy you know, store and see your name there? I think it was more fun for my mom, actually. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I have to say, in the 
opening of stores, you know, we'd opened a store in Soho, tiny little 300-square-foot store. And the next thing, you know, we're opening a bigger store in New York, and then we're opening in Los Angeles and Chicago. And, you know, it was kind of, at that point, it became a little dizzying and a bit of a whirlwind, but it was fun. And and so at some point, you guys sold a, a part of the company. Um, was that Was that to sort of scale up or, like, to make it even bigger? You know, it was also um, a safety net, quite honestly, for us personally. And it was Neiman Marcus, and we thought that would be somebody that would be in a position to help us. And they bought a, a little bit more than 50% of the company at the time, They did. Right? They bought 56%. And and reportedly for more than $30 million. Was that just insane to you guys when, when, yes, when that happened? Yes, it was. <laughs> they were, I think, our biggest client or store at the time. And we were doing very well with them. And they had just started investing in other little little brands that they thought had potential. And yeah, they came to us. We were completely in shock. And yeah. it was exciting because we thought, wow, if everything goes goes away tomorrow – you know, we'll be able to sustain the business. I mean, if it, I mean, it was really about, you know, being able to have a bit of an essay going forward for the four of us. And then what did that mean when, when Neiman Marcus bought more than half the company? How did it change Kate Spade? We started going into more categories because they were encouraging that, which a lot of the stores, not just Neiman's, you know, it was Saks, all of them were really encouraging us to branch out into other categories. So we did stationary next, which that was right when the phones and emails and all that were replacing people writing notes. And people came to us and they said, well, when we said another category, we didn't mean, you know, a dying category. <laughs> so I think what they were implying was shoes. They really wanted some real substantial second categories or third, fourth. So then we started doing shoes and it really just started, you know, I think it was just a good boost. And, I mean, you guys probably had to go from you and Andy and your two partners to lots of employees quickly, right? We did. But we had done that actually, you know, in the process, slowly, slowly changing, you know, offices. And we'd take a floor and then we'd take another floor in the building. And then we started hiring people, so PR hiring and, departments. and different departments and production people and and then hiring people that – had more experience. Hmm. So I really had a lot of people around, and, and Andy did. Andy really surrounded himself with a really great art department. And I really had great designers with me, and I think we really developed employees that were amazing. When, when did you start to see Kate Spade bags all over the place? Like Because, of, of course, it became a huge, iconic brand. When did you first kind of realize that that was the case? I'd say it was about 97 it was still very New York, though, I must say. Very New York, Los Angeles, Chicago. I think it was about 98 or 90 where you would see them, you know, in any city that you went to. And counterfeits started around 90. That was about true, yes. And we the started counterfeits, seeing them on Canal Street. Which Andy said that's actually a, a compliment. He said, you know you're doing something right when they're on every blanket on every street and corner. And I think, I think we celebrated for a day and then the next day that was over. You guys sold the rest of your your share of Kate Spade, I guess, in, in around 2007 mm-hmm. and kind of just walked away from it. Why would you decide to do that? So we had a baby in 2005, and I just remember mm. thinking it was a perfect opportunity. And I think the point was that Neiman Marcus at the time was selling themselves to Texas Pacific. And they involved us, and I must give them a lot of credit for that. But when we sold, I remember thinking, now, it's kind of like we have a 
a boss, and I, I remember thinking I want to leave on on good terms. It was a perfect time to leave. I wanted to spend time with my daughter. It was. You've heard so many horror stories about people who sell and then they stay and then they fight and then they sue. And I just thought, oh, it, it's that's too ugly for me. So we left on great terms. We stayed. We did a turnover. For a year, I think we were there. Yeah, transition to make sure yes. all the employees who we loved had had agreements to carry on, yeah. and you know, making sure everyone understood what the process was. Um, and, and they understood. The, the new natural. owners understood, and they were very gracious. And I think we all handled it very well. And it was seamless. It was a very quiet exit. <laughs> Do you guys? Um, I mean, you guys obviously have this incredibly strong. Marriage, I mean, you met when you were college students. You're still together. You have a – you create this, this, these amazing brands. And how do you how do you have a marriage and a business and make it work? <laughs> I mean, I'll say from my perspective, I remember people saying, how do you work together? And I, I was thrilled. And, I, and Andy one day said, listen. I said, oh, wait up, wait up. I'm not ready yet. And he said, oh, no, no, let me tell you right now. If you think that every day we're going to go to office together and we're going to have lunch together <laughs> – he said, that's not happening. We actually worked on separate floors huh. for that very reason because I had a tendency to go into his office and he'd be on the phone and I'd say, get off the phone, I have something to tell you or ask you. And that we had to really, I had to myself find boundaries and we had to make a conscious effort not to talk about it 24-7, which is, as you can tell by how quickly I talk, my <laughs> tendency. And I also am very a nervous person. I worry a lot. And Andy could not be more different. <laughs> you have you you were like the sleepless nights person. Yes, and always you know the the sky is falling. And Andy was like, oh, you know, it's it's fine. And I think that because we we kind of grew up together, you know, from our twenties yes. up until now in our fifties, and we actually have a lot in common, which helps. You guys um, recently launched a new company together. You call, you call it uh, Francis Valentine. Yes. Uh, and Kate, you changed your name from Kate Spade to Kate Valentine? I did. Well, I added it. I didn't change it. I just added Francis Valentine yeah. into it. So it's very, it's Catherine Noel, Francis Valentine, Brosnan Spade. It's like pretty long. Did you do it in part because Kate Spade had become its own thing and beyond a single person? Yes, and I thought it was important to make sure that we weren't stepping on any toes and that that we distinguished our company, and I think that was important for both of us. I mean, people still call me Kate Spade. I go by it, but I I'm, I get confused myself, so you can call me Francis if you want. <laughs> <laughs> and can you tell me about Francis Valentine? What, what does the company do? We are doing shoes and handbags, and we actually, when we started, it was initially just shoes. And although we've only been in business for about a, Not a year, just a year, a little over a year, but we've realized that um, people were expecting bags. And, and I mean, now you're—I mean, it's it's a little bit different, right? Because the hunger is—I'm sure it's still there, but it, it's not like a do or die thing. Like it, 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 it must be a bit. I don't know. Is it less stressful? We have air conditioning. I think that's big. That's a big difference, right? <laughs> Elevate, right? Elevators and air conditioning. Exactly. I would say there's. It's both. I feel a little more confident. I think Andy feels the same because we've done it before. But on the same hand, you think that people are expecting a great deal. So there's still there's still a lot of pressure. Trust me. And 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 we're self financing again. So. I'm not crazy about, as I mentioned earlier, losing any money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, this thing better work. 
do you when you walk past a Kate Spade shop today or or see a bag, do, do you do you feel emotion an emotional attachment to it or or is it sort of like, well, you know, that that's a different thing now? It's funny because I I do look at it and I don't – people said, oh, do you have any regrets? And I remember thinking, oh, I hope I don't. And I never have. And I think they've done such a good job that luckily I don't have to have. And we do walk by the stores and I have a funny story that we actually walked into a store to buy my daughter something. And we went to the cash register and she said, are you on our mailing list? And I said, <laughs> um, I don't think so. And, and so then I used my maiden name and I said – she said Brosnan and then my daughter kind of kept nudging me she was dying for me to say something and I didn't and then I remember thinking you know no I'm not on your mailing list but I think I helped create it <laughs> that's the end scene of your movie yes <laughs> you in the Kate Spade store and they're asking you if you're on the mailing list we were looking for the ending thank you this is this, now I got it. let me take a note right <laughs> That's Kate and Andy Spade. And by the way, if you've ever heard of Jack Spade bags for men, Kate and Andy were behind those too. And no, Jack is not a real person, just a cool name. I mean, honestly, people constantly are saying, you know Jack and Kate Spade, right? Or you know Kate and Jack Spade? And then I, I don't want to embarrass them, but I'll say, oh, you mean Andy. And they're like, oh, Andy. And they're <laughs> too like, complicated. Are you divorced? Who's, where's Jack? <laughs> And please do stick around because in just a moment, we're going to hear about the things you're building. But first, a quick thanks to one of our sponsors, QuickBooks. When you work for yourself, every receipt lost is cash lost at the end of the year. Snap and sort your business expenses with QuickBooks for maximum tax deductions. Smarter business tools for the world's hardest workers. QuickBooks, backing you. Hey, thanks so much for sticking around because it's time now for How You Built That. And today we're going to bring you an update to the story of how Dennis Darnell solved a problem we can probably all relate to. You know, when, when I used to get home, you'd come in the house and there'd be that one fly flying around. You'd have no idea how it got in there, but it's flying around, it's bugging you. I think we can all relate to that problem. Anyway, one summer day in San Diego where Dennis lives, he and his wife, Joy Lynn, were sitting in the kitchen and they were watching a fly buzz all around. We sat there and watched it trying to get into the garbage can. And one of us said, why don't we drill a hole in the lid and let it in, but put a trap on the underside of the lid. And that is how the garbage can fly trap was born. Flies, of course, love garbage. So Dennis designed this trap where you drill a hole in the lid of your garbage can and then you pop in this little plastic doorway for the fly. But there's also a second part, which is the cartridge, which is lined with fly paper. And so while the fly thinks it's going down into the garbage can, it actually walks into the disposable cartridge and becomes stuck. And once the cartridge gets full with like, you know, 100 flies, you don't have to look at them or touch anything sticky or gross. Instead, you just push the button on the lid and the cartridge falls into the garbage can. That's Dennis Darnell. Since we first spoke to him a little over a year ago, he started selling his products on Amazon. He and his wife are still selling the original fly traps, but Dennis says their best selling product is a pet waste bin that comes with a fly trap. And last year, their sales jumped from $300 to 25,000. 
Hey, if you want to tell us your story, go to build.npr.org. We love hearing what you're up to. And thanks as well for listening to our show this week. If you want to find out more or hear previous episodes, you can go to howibuiltthis.npr.org. Please also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcasts. You can also write us at hibt at npr.org. You can tweet us. That's at howibuiltthis. Our show was produced this week by Casey Herman. Ramtin Arablouei composed our music. Thanks also to Neva Grant, Sanaz Meshkanpour, and Jeff Rogers. Our intern is Diana Mustak. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to How I Built This from NPR. would you pay to avoid morning traffic? Why are plane tickets to Boise so expensive? I'm Cardiff Garcia, co-host of The Indicator. In every episode, we take on a new unexpected idea to help you make sense of the day's news. Listen every afternoon on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. What does it take to start something from nothing? And what does it take to actually build it? I'm Guy Raz. Every week on How I Built This, I speak with founders behind some of the most inspiring companies in the world. NPR's How I Built This. Listen now.